I'm going to say that um, I need both your help. This Saturday, I'm going to take in everyone's advice. Lads, things aren't working out yet. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I really do need to take some of this on board. And we have a bit of a, you know, a, a realisation that you need to take some advice. <sighs> And welcome to episode 10 of Start From Scratch with me, Tristan Griffiths. Eddie Beardsley. Joshua Griffiths. <laughs> Better that time. Every time. Every single Better time. time. I can't do it. I can't do this anymore, to be honest. I think you just introduce us all. I think that's good week. Just say your name. Yeah. Hey, I'm, I, hey, I'm Josh. How many people do I meet on a weekly basis that I would need to say that to? Most of the time I talk to my friends, work yeah. colleagues, yeah. and family. Josh, we're trying to appeal and get out to hundreds of thousands of listeners who you won't know. So just say, hi, Josh. Yeah, Josh Griffiths. Hi, how you doing? Hi. <laughs> hi. No, I'm not sorry. sorry. Oh. I'm doing just Josh Griffiths. Josh. Yeah, just Josh. Josh, yeah. Jesus. Jesus, yeah. So this week we are going to be talking about... Josh is round last week. He's going to give us a bit of an overview about what happened. Um, I know that there was quite a difficult phone call involved, so it'd be good to get the, uh, the details between Tristan and Josh. Uh, and then we have a very special guest this week, uh, a gentleman called Adrian Fryer. Many of you might know Adrian. He is quite heavily featured in today's Golfer magazine. Uh, he is listed as one of the top 50 coaches by, by today's Golfer. Based at Liverpool Golf Centre, We've had some really, really good interaction with Adrian already. I know that he's very, very much looking forward to coming on and meeting the man, the myth, Joshua Griffiths. So, Josh, um, no, best behaviour. No, the legend. Isn't that... Oh, yes, no, not moment. a legend at, at, at this moment. You're certainly not a legend. Moving on, Josh. Do you want to set the scene or do you want Tristan to set the scene? I'll set it. No, I think I should. I, it happened to me. I think I should. I don't think people can appreciate... No. Go on, set the scene then. How normal this conversation was. Just set the scene then. So on Saturday, we hadn't we hadn't talked about our golf or who was golfing or whatever, but I knew that there would be golf on the Saturday, obviously. So I just happened to ring Josh about, I don't know, midday, and he answered the phone. It was windy in the background, and I thought, oh, yes, I've caught him mid-round. I said, you're right? He went, yeah, are you? I went, yeah, yeah. What are you doing? You're playing golf? I said, yeah. I said, how are you playing? And there was just too long a pause. And he went, well, I'm on the sixth hole and I'm almost saying hard. So. Yeah, I could have been hard on the third. I went, I went five I off went, the whoa, tee. Whoa. No, first okay. hole, start, you got to start from the start. Start from scratch. Right, well, can I just give a little shout out to, to Lee Jones from Comet. Lee, I had every attention of, of rocking up to Bull Bay, ready to tear it up with nothing but my irons, apart from the first tee, which I just don't know why, I just had to hit drive, it worked out all right, but then the second hole, it was iron off every tee, and I just started shanking them all, and I mean like shanking every single one, and I'm how, not even joking. How did the, how did your warm-up go? Was that pretty good? Uh, yeah, so my warm-up consisted of getting out of my car and getting my car, my clubs out of the boot and going on to the first tee. Yeah, yeah. And then... Uh, got on the second tee, started shanking everything, 
just I don't know how I made it through the sick the, the the second thing I got lucky found one of my balls third hole tees at the front so no excuse wind in face so playing relatively easy and I just shanked shanked the first one overcompensated and duck hooked the second one shanked my five off the tee into the farm next door was like right turned to my brother I was like right mate I'm not doing this anymore sack this off I'm not playing he was like, no, mate, you need to carry on racking the card. I was like, nah. Luckily, found my three off the tee, shanked to my shot, stayed in play, walked away with like a six or a seven. Fourth hole, shank again. No, it wasn't. Fourth hole was a duck hook. Somehow walked away with a five on there. Then fifth hole, shank, shank, found my first ball. Sixth hole, shank. So I was just like, I just felt like hitting driver then every shot, no matter how close I was to the green. I just you know was when, not feeling it. Sorry, you know when you say shank, was it like a proper shank, like hosel rocket, or was it like you just catching the 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 hosel a little bit and it was just sort of going right? Was it a, were they proper bad were they properly bad ones? Similar to what I did with you the other day. Um where you took, where you shank the ball over your house. Yeah, yeah. That one. And then Oh yeah. Can, can I just interview? Yeah. All right, if this happened to me, I would either phone or text Matthew Totten about, listen, as my coach, what the hell can I do here? What's going on? But seeing as you've opted to coach yourself, how did that conversation go with yeah. yourself? Forget about it, innit? Next tee. <laughs> <laughs> Forget about it. Uh, then uh, I NR'd on the, on the 10th, it was. Uh, duck, hook and shank. Five off the tee later, I was like, nah, there's no point in this anymore. I, oh, I, that's what I worked out that for me to come in level with my handicap on the back nine, I'd have to shoot a level gross. And I'd, used all my, you, I'd used all my handicap up on the first nine, yeah. You were up for that though? Yeah, yeah. And not one point was like, oh, that's never happened. I was like, weird things have happened. And then on the, on the after I then had, but I kind of counted my score. I worked out that I needed to come in and fall in the gross on the 12th tee then. And I thought that was a little bit on my reach. So it was a little bit unrealistic. So you did play for the 18 then, yeah? You did. You, you went around all the holes, but you just... Yeah, I just, I'd, just been to, I'd just been to Dick Gorth the night before and bought loads of balls. Oh, yeah. I forgot. I can't see him, can I? Yeah, you can. It just... I don't know why you're trying to force irrelevant people into conversation. No, you should put you should a bit of context. Yeah, cheers. Cheers, Andy. Anyway, went to see Dick Gorth the night before, bought, bought a tenner's worth of balls. And just like I said, the previous episode, like, I was losing balls. I wasn't even looking for him. I was rich at that point. Like I didn't even didn't even go looking for half the balls. So I finished eighteen holes, lost about 10, 10, 11 balls. I think I worked out. What balls did you buy? Out of interest, yeah, uh, about ten p like Pro V ones. They just suit my ball flight a bit more and my spin rate and that. <laughs> Jesus, do you know who I think is getting really frustrated? Every single guest that we've had on. Yeah, every single guest we've had on. Basically, because when you bring a guest on, they then become part of the podcast. So they're part of, you know, how we go forward and how we started and whatever we do moving forward, every guest is a part of that. And I think they're becoming increasingly frustrated at listening to you week in, week out, just thinking he's just completely fobbed me off there. He has just listened to me for an hour and he's just completely and utterly fobbed. He's shown zero interest in what I've told him uh, and what I've tried to help him with. I, 
I'm, I'm losing this. Well, you're losing fans for us. It's hard to think of a counter argument to that, to be fair. Um, but having said that, I'm going into this Saturday with a bit of advice from every single guest we've had on so far. Go on, in. I'm going in with the no score counting. No, hang on. JR. Let me and Eddie give you a yeah. game and you tell yeah. us what you've taken from them. Eddie, okay, go on. we'll play pick and mix. Eddie, you go first. JR. No counting my score. Right. David Glynn. Strong mentality. Forget it. The next tee. Very cool. Preparation, technically and mentally, like a teacher. Lee Jones. Don't take my driver out of the bag. And you are committing to this right now. Again, you've you've yeah. made, made a load of false promises live on the podcast. But I am I'm gonna take a vouch. I'm gonna take it from everyone. I'm gonna take from the ones I've said I'm gonna take some from Sean Thomas, from Matthew Totty, Matthew Wharton. Don't believe it. No, I don't believe um, it. Bullshit, man. Yeah. Bullshit. We'll we'll see. What's the uh, excuse, right, of not taking that stuff on after we did those interviews? I'm sorry, but I won't accept this lip from someone who's not even off single figures. That's got a point. Well, I'll take it from Tris, fair enough. Seven handicappers, fair enough. Yeah. But you, Eddie, you can just stay in that little corner there, look. Yeah. Your name, <laughs> yeah. I was going to say your name, your girlfriend's name, but like, scrap Gosh, that as well. I will allow that slate. Uh, I will let that stick. And Eddie, you're just going to have to take it. I'm sorry, but he's he's fully deserved that shot on you and you have to move on now I'm looking forward to get Adrian on because I read his article where he's given about a million different exercises and drills we could be doing at home so should we get Adrian on let's do it yeah You're doing you okay? I'm good. Yourself? Not too bad, thanks, mate. Not too bad. Good, good, good. Where do you live, Adrian? I live in Warrington. I'm speaking to you from sunny Warrington now. But <clears throat> excuse me, I'm originally originally from Manchester. That's where I grew up. Kind of worsely played my junior golf there, and then had a kind of assistance job briefly in Manchester. Then I moved to kind of Altrincham. Was there for five years, and then I got a job, a pro's job, up at Chorley Golf Club Hall at Phil in um, Chorley, Lancashire, which was great times for me in 88, that was. Um, but I was young, you know, I was, I was the youngest club pro in the, I think the country, to be honest with you, 22, I got the job. And it was a very busy, you know, golf was booming, a bit like kind of now all of a sudden, but it was booming. And I used to get 200 and odd people playing a comp every Saturday there. Oh, and wow. They, they I'd like, just, to win, like to win yeah. those, uh, <laughs> the winnings for that. Yeah. Well, the two sweep and everything else, you know, it was incredible. And they were, you know, working, it was a working man's club to just love beer and golf. They would play golf in the morning and just get hammered all afternoon. (laughs) 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 And then we had winter leagues, we had like 16 winter leagues over the Saturday and the Sunday. And they were great days for me. I started off with like 800 quid in my pocket and the first year I turned over about 50 grand and the second year 100 grand. But being a bit of, as you probably gather, a bit of a workaholic, I kind of got carried away. Then I got the pros job at Warrington. But after about three and a bit, four years there, a couple of the, one of the old timers, sons and his, his, his mate were, one was from, they were junior, one was a junior member at Warrington historically. And they'd gone to work in property in London, a bit of a kind of wide boy entrepreneur type thing. And they were building um, uh, drive time, the golf range in Warrington in 1991. So, that, so they approached me and said, listen, we need a half-decent pro with 
the verge of kind of all right sort of thing. Are you interested? And it was a real, it's kind of programmed all my life really this. It was a dilemma because I thought I've got a really good club. It was a seven year waiting list at the club then to get wow. in an affluent Whoa. area. It's a big populace yeah. nearby. It's always dry in the winter, which is a massive thing, isn't it? I mean, it's different for you guys on the, the coast there because obviously you've got North Wales and Holyhead and Conway and all those courses. They're a little drier, aren't they? But round here and a lot of the courses in Manchester and Cheshire, like Priors, you know, in the winter, you, without being disrespectful, you probably need your waders on. You yeah, know. it's not. It's so, not yeah. so if you've got a dry golf course, that's a bonus. And if you've got a load of houses with people with reasonable incomes, you know, in theory, you're going to fill your membership, aren't you? Yeah. Anyway, I cut those. So I left. The, these guys approached me. And I thought, right, that I thought it was a 60 bay driving range, two story. There's only one other one in the UK at the time, Beverly Park. So I'd done the homework. I'd been to see that. Everything else, I thought. Well, whoever comes here is either going to shit on me from a great height or I'm going to shit on them. <laughs> so I thought, I had a young family. I mean, I've got four kids and I said, my lad's my oldest, he's 33 and I've got three daughters and he's the golf pro, but the other girls don't play. But um, I thought, right, I'll have a run at it. So I did that and ran the shop and did everything. But then the teaching was taking over. It was a busy, busy place. So in 94, they built the clubhouse and they took the shop over and I just have been hammering it lessons wise ever since really i was getting i was into teaching before then but it kind of became a lot more intense you know that's the potted history boys as a golfer were you always a good golfer or you know being a coach now you look back and are you able to evaluate how good you actually were at that at one point no i was i was a reasonable golfer um any anybody who any golf pro i think kind of worth the salt you, you come into it wanting to be the best player you can be you know otherwise you, i say that these days is actually changing i think young assistants some of them these days look at coaches and think oh i can make a nice living coaching i don't want to be a player but certainly i think historically most golf pros wanted to play the, the love of the game you know the, the the and i'm not saying it wasn't necessarily a career path some of us it was the only thing we were good at or could do you know, academically, you may not have been bright, and some guys are really bright. I mean, some of them, obviously, the bright guys nowadays might go to college in the US and kind of get some qualifications and try and prove themselves as players in the US. And obviously, a lot of European tour players have done that, you know, and you kind of your Luke Donalds and people like these who are, you know, bright guys in their own right, but also excellent players. But I think in those days, you, the, the route was you... you you, you were either good enough and you were playing and beating everybody, as my old boss used to say, if you can't beat everybody in your own backyard, why are you bothering playing, say, European Tour or regionally? Mm. And that, that may change, say, slightly these days because you get some players who blossom later on, you know, in their careers. They've always been good regionally and all of a sudden they get more confidence and what have you. But, but I, yeah, getting back to me, I wanted to play. I was a low handicap, you know, three, four handicap junior at the golf club. But at 16, I'd turned pro. I was lucky. I lived by a golf course in Manchester. And I used to run home from school, jump over the fence and just play golf every day. I thought, this is better than studying yeah. and, and what yeah. have you. And I literally, I mean, I was right. I lived a 50-yard pitch, not even that, 30-yard pitch from the golf course. So I just became fascinated by it. I wasn't a great team sport player. And, and the appeal of this individual mission of me against golf appealed to me. And I think, you know, it may come up later on this in the in the podcast when we talk about on, on the list of questions and things, you know, about 
what makes good players. And I, I, in a recent Zoom meeting or podcast, I mentioned, I mean, I've been to nearly every seminar known to man from all the coaches. And I've, I've been doing some Zoom meetings recently for, for the PGA and different things. But Clive Woodward said it's not kind of unhealthy to be obsessed. In, in America, so you, you see these outliers like Matt Wolf, like Bubba Watson, guys with different looking golf swings that maybe historically that would have been coached out of them maybe in the uk more than the us because the us college system and in us life you are judged by are you a winner you know yeah. do you, you just got to beat the other team and beat the crap out of the other guy or girl <laughs> you know they're a highly competitive nation so how your swing looks if kind of bubba comes along and he's swinging it straight up and down but he's shooting 63 every week and knocking it miles all of a sudden the coaches and the coaches some of the coaches are not necessarily big swing gurus they're actually a guy who's employed by the university who looks after all the travels does the roster does the team things and their golfing knowledge i'm not saying in every case because some of them are very highly qualified but a lot of them they may be not super technically qualified so that gives these players some scope to develop their ability to score not their ability to say have a super looking clone like golf swing yeah you know, so you, it, it does happen these days a bit more, that, I think. Adrian, that's really, really interesting. One of the things, you know, you'll have known from hopefully listening to some of the other episodes, our sort of focus, I know we've, we've had a lot of pros and, you know, this podcast is opening up, opening us up, sorry, to, to lots of people, including yourself, that we never thought we'd get on. But fr- from your point of view, when you're, when you're coaching very, very good players, we're talking sort of, you know, category one, scratch, you know, and, and arguably maybe plus golfers. Mm. How do you differentiate between those levels of players? You know, do you see certain strengths in certain areas and, and how do they improve? You know, is there, is there quite blatant, obvious signs that, yes, yeah, scratch player, they need to do this to get to plus? Not necessarily, I'm afraid. I think every, you know, uh, fortunately, coaching. I mean, it's a massive subject now, and there's so there's so many avenues in coaching that you you know you've had your man on uh, Zach and the psychology side, and obviously Jamie Donaldson. And, you know, Jamie, obviously a county player, Welsh player, and so on, and develop. And there's always I, I get those questions where when you talk about good players, parents come to me and say, you know, would you think you'll make it? Do you think, you know, he's 15 or 12 or 14 or three? Or he's in, you know, it's amazing how many parents, the kids just popped out of the womb and they're saying, when can he start lessons? Because I want to retire. You know, <laughs> so they see, the, they see the kid as a, a pension or, a, you know, it's, it's unbelievable. You know, the, the odds on people making it statistically, I can't remember exactly what they are, a chap in Canada um, worked it all out one time. And, but the, 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 the minuscule, but also, the thing that the people who do make it are sometimes not the ones who you think are going to make it. In a, in a recent um, meeting, I had, had Padre, Howard Bennett, who's an 83 Howard Master Professional, and he was coaching Golf Union of Ireland. And one of his first weeks or whatever was to teach the squad. And they kind of said, well, because these boys here, you know, and there's this guy at the end, um, Paddy Harrington, just have a quick look at him as well. He's, he's all right. He's not very good, you know. Um, but, you know, these other boys are another boy, Leslie Walker, won the, the, the amateur championship and different things. So you can't pigeonhole people because obviously mm. he's gone on to prove it with three majors and, and so on. You can't measure this. I'm going to digress, as you probably will gather already. But yeah. we, we're trying to measure everything in golf these days. And I constantly come back to 
and I, I do sound a bit of a kind of Victor Meldrew at times or whatever, because we've now got the tools to measure everything. So we can measure ground force reaction, we can measure clubhead speed, we can measure path phase angle, angle of attack, you know, how much you're rotating, all these tech, whichever bit of tech you want, you're putting stroke and so on, we can measure it. But you can't measure the size of someone's heart or their nuts to um, <laughs> And those are the things that in the heat of tournament play, apart from having a half decent golf swing, those are the things that are probably going to carry them through more than maybe technique. You know, when Martin Keimer holds that putt for the Ryder Cup, how much of that is just having been in that situation, thought about it all your life? You know, we've all done it, haven't we? And even Joshua, you've done this. This one, this one for the Masters. Absolutely. You know, the Welsh Masters. Yeah. yeah. You know. he, thinks but, he thinks just too differently to the rest of us. I'm, I'm not sure we can uh, pigeonhole him at all. Thinking, I, I didn't. I, I, when you mentioned the word thinking, there, that was a, a broad statement. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, on the topic of what you just said, then, what do you think of? Are you more of a an old-fashioned coach, or are, do you do you really like the way coaches gone now with the numbers and stuff? Do you mind? I, I, like, I like I like both of it. I don't use maybe technology as much as some coaches because, and I, and I know, God, this sounds so arrogant. It's like Butch Harmon in a podcast with a guy and the guy said, you haven't got a track man. And he went, this is my track man, obviously pointing at his <laughs> eyes. You know, so when John Jacobs, the best coach that ever kind of lived, if you ask Butch Harmon or Hank Haney or anybody else, didn't have a track man, you know, you have to understand that the act of hitting a golf ball, whether you're Bobby Jones or Gene Sarazen or Peter Thompson, one five or, or Harry Varden going to the US and winning, finishing first and third, you know, in the 1930s or 20s, no, the turn of the century in this case, sorry. You know, these people largely learned to do it by doing it. They, and, and certainly Jacobs or myself, if I was watching any of you three now hit golf balls, I would like to think within a few moments, I can tell whether you're too steep on it. I can tell whether you're, coming across it out to in. I can tell whether you're a bit too inside, a bit too shallow, you know, whether you're hitting it in the middle of the face, how big your divot's likely to be, the speed of the ball, roughly, you know, from watching golf swings for 40 years, that you have a pretty good, your, your computer, your brain, your nous, whatever you want to call it. Now, does that allow me to say, ah, well, Joshua hit down that 4.3 degrees and his path was four degrees out to the right and the face was two degrees left? No, it doesn't allow me to do that because a human cannot measure that. You've got a pretty good idea because you've been looking at golf swings and the noise and the, and the path and so on. So what technology has allowed us to do is validate some of the things we pretty much knew were happening, but now we can confirm. Now, don't get me wrong, something like whether it's TrackMan Flightscope GC2, all these launch monitors and the missile technology, or force plates and so on. They are things we've, we've seen and they've, they've, they've gradually developed and they're becoming more and more accurate. But none of them will hit the golf ball for you. You know, mm -hmm. and my pal Martin Hall says they're good, but they're not God. They give us information. They give us feedback. And if that feedback is used correctly and the right amount, the right amount at the right time for the right student, then it's great stuff. And it mm -hmm. is great stuff. But I, I think the consumer is being driven because of Instagram, because of Twitter, because of technology, is being driven that they're thinking that if they have a lesson with all this tech, that is immediately going to make them a, a great player. But it isn't because the human has still got to perform the act and still has to have a bit of an intellectual understanding or a mental picture or a, depending on how you learn, of 
what the club needs to do to the golf ball and what you need to do with your body to present this club. You, you know, you just, you're moving an instrument around your body with the act of propelling this ball towards a target at that given distance and shape and, and so on. Obviously, the more skillful you get at that, the, <laughs> the better you are, aren't you? You know, yeah. but the machine, no matter what it is, will not hit it for you. So the hard yards, you know, the old Hogan secrets in the dirt, you've still got to do a bit of self-discovery yourself. You've still got, you know, if you wind the clock back 15 years, let's say Jamie Donaldson, how you had, who you had on your show the other day, or we, we wind it back 15 years, or, you, you know, most of is coming prevalent 15-ish years ago started to happen. How did everybody learn to play without one of those? How did Nicholas win? You know, how did Watson win five opens? How did Peter Thompson win five yeah. opens? How did, without all this help, you know, it's not compulsory that you have to have all that kit to be a, a good player. And for some people, it harms them and others, it helps them. Again, but it's all about the coach using it correctly, really, I would say. More more of a of something to fine-tune your swing rather than something to completely rely on. Like you say, this is where I asked what my next question would be. People do think that it's going to fix their their swing straight away if they look at it but you say it's more to fine tune it and like you say validate the things you're yeah and I think a little knowledge is dangerous you know you go on you go on the internet you go on YouTube tonight and you consume a load of blogs or club fitted information or what have you and all of a sudden you know that that ball's got to be launched at 14.3 degrees with a six time it's got to be 92 miles an hour it's got to have this that and the other and then you're measuring yourself against that to a degree you might have a benchmark or what what have you but again if for example i've only seen your swing briefly on um <laughs> video yeah and i can see just looking at one swing that you make a kind of half decent backswing and then you just try and knock seven shades out of it but <laughs> <laughs> but i can also see without being being with you or without having a launch monitor ever that you're highly likely probably attack it too much from the inside you know, you probably hit pushes, you probably hit some hooks, you probably hit the ground a little bit before the ball with your irons. So that's me just seeing a little bit of video of this, your swing signature, your shape. You, you understand what I mean? So yeah. what happens, I suppose, when you've taught a lot, and I'm talking for all coaches now, if I've got any coach who's really taught a lot, and, I'm, and you could name all the Pete Cowan, Dennis Pugh, you know, Martin Hall, uh, Jim McLean, all these top guys, if you had a range of 30 people, and Matt Totty takes the mickey out of me with this, by the way, because he, he will validate this, that I pigeonhole people or I label them by their golf swing. So if he said, do you remember Joshua? And I said, oh, yeah, the kid of five foot seven comes a bit from the inside, tries to knock the shit out of it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or I'll say, yeah, so-and-so, he's a bit steep, he comes across it. So I kind of, my, my fingerprint of them as a person is what I see when they're, yeah. Their, their golf swing so any going back to it any guy walking down that range could walk past them and go strong grip steep back swing too open aiming right swinging left ball too far yeah. forward they would immediately compute all that information because they've seen it a lot just as you guys in your chosen profession once you've been doing it 30 40 years you know it's like yeah. the midwife you know once she's delivered a few thousand babies she isn't that she, she might not need all that kit because she just knows what she's doing no, I'm not saying the kit and the, you know the old MRI scan would help more than an X-ray. Of course, it would. So it sheds light on it, but it doesn't. It, all these things shed light. They help us validate. They help us. So with Joshua, it might require me to say, "Look, I told you you were um, 15 degrees inside. 
and then do this, do that, feel that. Okay, look, now you're only four degrees instead. Oh, look, now you're only two degrees. So if that gives somebody some validation, some knowledge, some confirmation, some confidence that what they're working on is correct, well, then it's got to be a good thing, hasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I can't wait for Josh to, you know, Adrian, we massively respect you and uh, what you do, but I just can't wait for Josh to completely fob your advice off in the next <laughs> will not listen. No, I've turned. I've turned the new leaf now. Has he turned the new corner? I've turned the. I've, yeah, I've turned. What? Well, I've turned the page. I'm. Oh, yeah. on, Go on. Enlighten I'm me. officially on the road to scratch now. Yeah. I'm. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm actually. I, I'm actually dead on five foot seven as well, Adrian. I'm actually dead on five foot seven. Oh, no, there you go. You see. Accurate. Incredibly accurate. Just from video as well. No, I think, well, we're all on that journey, you know, and, 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 and it depends going back to the initial question because I go off piece, you know, how do you check it, Eddie? You asked me, you know, how do you approach somebody? And it depends, you know, there's an old saying, go feed what they need. Some people come in and you can just see young players and you think, gosh, this guy can hit it. So that guy's got speed. So you don't need to work on speed or whatever with him, but he might have no accuracy or he might have a bad shot. He might miss it left or whatever you know so with a bit of interrogation and uh, then if you get the opportunity to see them play even better you get you know you're going to try and maybe refine their technique and say well listen we need to this is what good players are doing here's some evidence you know here's look at this look at this you could look at the numbers you could look at video you could look at the evidence of and they may you know see it with tommy fleetwood or adam scott or something oh yeah And, and 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 you have to justify or prove to say listen i believe if you do x y and z with your golf swing hopefully you're going to be a better ball striker not just going to have a nicer looking golf swing you're going to eliminate this bad shot or you're going to be able to control the ball because at golf at the end of the day is your ability to control the ball and score isn't it mm-hmm. that that at a high level certainly but you know and even when you you're, you're interrogating those players and they come in all sorts of shapes and sizes and and and, and personalities um you 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 might feel that actually this chap doesn't really need much help with his golf swing he needs a better temperament or he needs to practice more effectively or he needs just the right mental attitude before he goes into a tournament you know he, he can play great around his own track and then he gets in an event and doesn't play as well as he you think he should or she should and so it's kind of pushing the right buttons, isn't it? Or finding, you know, strengths and weaknesses, isn't it? You've got to try and fill the gaps and um, make that person ultimately score better. And that's at every level. doesn't matter if you're a 28 handicapper or a 15 handicapper or a two handicapper or a, or a, a tour player. You know, sometimes a, a tour player goes to a different coach and you might tell them exactly the same as the other coach, but he might be a bit more motivational or might give the guy a bit of confidence. You know, you see it, say, with Butch Harmon and Dustin Turner or somebody, and, and all of a sudden they're off. And once they've won, they're, they're off and running, aren't they? I'm asking you this, Adrian, because obviously you've, got, you've had years of um, seeing people and proving people, and you might be able to quantify this for me, but if you're going through some changes or some you're improving a part of your game with some more, uh, with some new information from a coach... I understand that everybody would be different, but do you mm. do you have a recommended time frame or amount of hours you think that it would take? For example, for me now, I've had to learn to pitch in a completely different way. After going to see Matthew Totti, I've had yeah. to rehaul the way I pitch the ball within a hundred yards. 
Now, for me, I've played three rounds since that. I've seen flashes of good and I've seen lots of bad still. How, how, how much golf do you think I would need to play to sort of get to that stage where I can see improvements consistently? Well, I think, you know, I know, I know Matt will obviously have told you exactly what you need. And sometimes intellectually, you'll get that. You go, oh, yeah, yeah, I get that. Now, it does depend on how habitual your other method is, if you like, or your old motor patterns are. And some motor patterns are easy to, to shift and others aren't because they're very deep-seated without getting too much into the neuroscience. It's like your signature. You don't write your signature for a year and then you write it, it'll still be the same because it's heavily ingrained in there. But if, you know, you were dropping on the inside too much or flipping it or whatever, and you change your release pattern or the feel, a lot of it is, like you say, the volume of your practice. And there's all this 10,000-hour rule in sport. That's that's a nice notional number, but why wasn't it 9,000 or 11,000 or 12? That was just a kind of a, a number mm-hmm. picked out. But basically what it is, it's a, a SH1T load of practice. You know, you've got to hit a lot of golf balls if you're going to do something but it might not even be golf balls it might be rehearsals in the mirror it might be putting some interventions there some sponges on the floor or something or something to avoid or you know external internal focus there's lots of different ways of doing it i think what's got to happen though from your point of view Tristan, is that you've got to see success sometimes you've got to hit some shots that you think oh that felt good that was it that's going to give me the impetus, the courage, whatever I need to pursue this, that this does does work. I had a, a conversation this morning with a, a decent player on the phone about a lesson, and he wanted a short game lesson. And I said, listen, I've only got one space next week, whatever, at 11 o'clock. Uh, I'm playing at two. Do you think I should come? And me being me, and obviously, again, I've got to be careful on your podcast, um, is a little bit more colourful <laughs> and I said well what you're doing is shit anyway so you've nothing to lose yeah you know why wouldn't you want to come if I just give you something that makes you pitch it better a bit I always laugh when people say well I know I'm going to get worse after lessons before I get better and I always say well how's that the case because you're actually crap so <laughs> you know, and that, that sounds disrespectful because I don't say that and again, that's about knowing your student, isn't it? What relationship, whether you can bully them or put your arm around them. But for some people, sometimes what they're doing simply doesn't work. So it's the old Einstein, if you keep doing the, the same thing and expect, you know, definition of sanity, keep doing the same thing and expect the, you know, a, a different outcome sort of thing. So, you know, if you've done what you've always done, you'll get what you've always got sort of thing. So, so sometimes you have to change things. And it depends on what part of your game is. Sometimes you just click on a feeling, don't you? And you think, oh, that's it, you know, swing left or, you know, hands low or whatever, and you're off. So, again, it's going back to one thing I was going about before about measuring everything. There's this fascination in sport and in life, but particularly in golf, that you have to pigeonhole everything. How long is it going to take me to learn this? How fast should I swing? How big should Bryson DeChambeau's biceps be? How should, well, the big question is, it depends. You've got Gary Woodland losing weight to improve yeah. his performance and Bryson DeChambeau bulking up. Now that's happened for the last hundred years, you know, in golf. But what is now there's this fascination to, to measure everything or pigeonhole everything. Now, as I say, sometimes it's difficult. I say to people, you can't pigeonhole the unpigeonholeable. Yeah. <laughs> there, 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 there are certain things you can't, it's like snowflakes, I call it. They all look similar, but they're not the same and you can't, reproduce them 
So I think, you know, every case is different. How long is it going to take? Sometimes you just go bish, bash, bosh, and someone just hits it immediately better, and, and they're off. And other people, it takes a long time. And, and, and sometimes for those people, you've got, to, you've got to tell them this is, I'm not saying it's going to be painful because it's not a matter of life or, or death. But I had a young man like Josh this morning, who's really keen, lovely lad, and he's smashing the life out of it. And I had to say to him, listen, you know, you've got to calm down. I need you to hit hundreds of shots with your feet together just so you can. And I didn't say that because I wanted it to look nice. I wanted him to use leverage more in his golf swing. He was overusing his body, using his levers. So again, if we got him on some technical apparatus or some, some biomechanical stuff, I could say, listen, your wrists are contributing this or your body's contributing that. And this, this is not all, you know, so scientifically you could prove that with the right equipment. But I could see it and I said, listen, you are going to have to hit a lot of golf balls with your feet together or close together to educate your body to stay balanced while you improve the leverage in your golf swing. So going back to what I said before, you look at everybody's golf swing and the idea is to take stuff out, not really put stuff in. So you're not trying to create loads more things. You're going to say, well, we don't need that. We don't need this. We don't need that. You're trying to make the engine or the method or the person more efficient to get rid of all the stuff you don't need and only use the stuff you do need. And yeah. if a player's got too much rotation, you might have to carb that down and put more leverage in. If he's got too much lateral movement, you might have to put more rotation in. If he's too steep, you've got to make him too shallow. You know, there yeah. are only so many permutations you can have, really, when you think about it. Yeah. I think what probably a lot of people, and most definitely me, find really difficult is, Matthew Totty's not my caddy. So I can go no. to him for an hour and... I'm feeling like, oh yeah, you know, like category one is not far away again, right. playing brilliant golf. And then as soon as I get in the car and go home, it's like I've lost that superpower. It and then on the, yeah. Yeah, and on the course of the day, I hit the ball on the green from about 90 yards. It spun so much, it came off the green. And I was actually buzzing about that. Wow, yeah. You know, I haven't done that in years. And I thought, well, it's obviously working. But then the next hole, the next hole, the next hole. And as you say, it's nice to have flashes. But I'm just trying to think to myself, next time the opportunity to play golf comes up, I'm not going to play. I'm going to go to the practice ground and just hit mm. pitch up the pitch of the pitch. It's all about managing your expectations, isn't it? So let's take a six-foot putt, for example. And everybody goes, well, I'm missing them. You know, I just don't hold these. And then when you show them the stats at seven foot six or whatever it is, tour players, the best players in the world, only hold 50% of those. They find that hard to believe because what they see on television is pros mm. stiffing it or holding six 12-footers. Well, of course, the, the, the camera crew and the entertainment value and everything else are showing people hitting good shots. They don't show you the guy who's missing the cut or the guy who's having a mare. They might show the leader or who all of a sudden has a wobble, loses the tournament or what have you. Most people's expectations in golf, and again, it sounds a sweeping statement, but they are high because they've seen the best on television. Mm -hmm. They've seen what good players do and think, well, I should be able to do that because it looks relatively easy golf, doesn't it? But if yeah. you think of how many penalties David Beckham had to hit or how many serves Federer had to hit, I liken it to penalty shootouts in football. How many times do you see them miss a bloody great net when you think, Christ, you know, that, that, that's like missing a two-foot putt. Federer or whatever, you know, double-faulting, these sort of things. The, the act of hitting a golf ball is a highly skilled, highly polished 
movement that you have to do, obviously on full shots at high speed, swing a club round your body, 70, 80, 90, 100 odd miles an hour, and return it to the exact millimeter in the right part of the face at the right time for one two thousandth of a second to produce that shot. So when you think about it, it ain't, it ain't that easy. You know, right. now the problem is it looks easy. So someone goes on Instagram, sees this, and the guy says, just do this, 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 and this, and you, you know, you'll be bombing it 300 yards. Well, if it was that easy, everybody would be doing it. And, and, and back to yourself, Tristan, obviously, yeah, you've got to go there and hit golf balls and practice it. People, people don't realize, the, the top players, of how many balls they've hit in their lifetime and how much, not just solitude, but they've been there on their own. You know, Hogan would go to the far end of the practice ground on his own, Faldo would, no friends, not interested in friendship, not interested in being part of the club, the, you know, the European Tour Club or the PGA Tour Club and whatever. These guys were, you know, Trevino, all these greats, Nicholas, whatever, the Derry player, you know, they're, they're all obsessive, highly driven individuals, you know. Yeah. And I'm not saying that every amateur golfer should should be like that because obviously there's, you've got to have the fun element and, uh, and so on. But you do have to do a lot of groundwork and, and, and build something that is robust, you know. And, and it's right back to basics that, you know, kind of hold the thing properly. Because again, every golf pro, you talk to a client or a student, you come in and you say, what's, you know, what's going wrong? Well, what, what do you think is wrong with your technique or what have you? And, and, and they will give you a, a kind of diatribe. Well, I think I bend my left arm and I think I tilt and I think I do this and I, I do that and I come across. And then when you look at them, they're not even got a half decent grip. Mm. So you think, well, hang on a minute. We're, we're further down. We're on number 12 in the chain when we've really not got number one or two. Correct. So we can't neglect just the the simple basics, as we call them, or whatever, you know, kind of hold it properly, kind of thing, and, and, and a basic understanding of the path and the face and those key elements. And it is, it is very difficult, Tristan, to know, you know, I, I, some people will get something quicker. depends on what element of your game it is, isn't it? Mm. Mm. And, and how, how, how confident you are, how broken it is or isn't, as the case may be. Sorry, uh, uh, when you said at the start of the podcast that your son was on YouTube mm. and you said, Mark, you then two and I, click. I was thinking Matt Fryer, Matt Fryer, and I clicked. I'm actually subscribed to him on YouTube. He's doing very well. Yeah, I'm very proud yeah, of him. He's, he's, he's really good. Of, he's um, you know, creating a nice. He's busy as a coach at the Trafford Centre, but he's creating a nice little following on his YouTube and Insta and all that stuff. So yeah, I saw that. Yeah, you know, he's, I see. He um, tried to put him off golf, but <laughs> I think because he's doing. I've seen he's, he's got. He's, yeah, like you say, he's doing really well. Um, did he used to work with? Rick Shields and Pete Rick Finch. Rick Shields and, and Peter yeah, Finch. Yeah, he did. Yeah. He worked with both. So he's very pally with those boys. And they're nice boys. You know, Rick and Pete are both good lads. And <clears throat> done, obviously, there's various people out there who are doing great on YouTube. You know, again, it's going back to golf and stuff. It's a, just a different way of consuming. And it's entertaining. And it's whatever, you know. Because, you know, as you gather, as we're going in this conversation, I've only got my limited views and they might be a bit entrenched but i do i like to have an open mind a I minute mean, as a 59 year old i do like to look at ground force reaction i do like to look, i've looked at psychology psychology for 30 years i did that 30 years ago with my students thinking i need to help them better i've looked at force plates in 2005 for the guy who invented them all those things so i do have an open an open mind about all this stuff you've got to because if you stand still you, you're going backwards aren't you yeah, and yeah. You, you've got a valid, you know, look at it and think, well, will that help? Won't it help? How much? And can I use a little bit of it? Can I 
you know, is it another tool in my toolbox to help people? Mm-hmm. And it sounds like I'm, you know, because I'm the, the Tony Hawk, it sounds like I beat everybody up who comes in the bay. <laughs> but, but that's not the case. You know, some of them I do. I, I beat them up and then uh, re-energize them after I've given them a good, a good uh, reality <laughs> check. But a lot of people, you know, I, I, I don't, you know, I see that they're trying very hard and, uh, you know, struggling and you, you, you've got to try and shed some light on it and help them and help them understand it. Everybody, I've never known anybody who likes playing badly. <laughs> well, I don't know, Josh does make a good go of it. I know he's almost <laughs> professional level at that, but... Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I've said, yeah, yeah, it's... Uh, no one enjoys playing badly, do they? No, we all want to hit it well. And what turns people on in golf? I used to have a guy I taught 20 years ago. He never went on a golf course. He'd just come, because for the last 30 years, I've worked on golf ranges. And I'm at, as you well know, I'm at Liverpool Golf Centre now, which is a great facility. There's a plug. But, um, uh, you know, but we get a very varied amount of golfers. And we've got some people who, and like I said, I just had this guy never went on a golf course, just loved the challenge of that perfect shot, learning to, you know, so... That turns one person on. Now, I had a chap the other day who said, oh, I hate practicing. And I get that. Some people don't like practicing. So you've got to find a different way of improving them. You know, it's horses for courses, isn't it? And, and that's, mm. that's in any sport or pastime. Somebody who likes cricket, may like football, somebody who likes golf, da, 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 da. So, you know, it's finding that way, isn't mm. it? And to help them play better and improve and enjoy the obviously, game. Obviously, yeah, like you're saying, you, you see a lot of golfers um, come, coming in and out of... of, of your coaching lessons and one, and obviously you've got a really good reputation as being a really, really good coach, like a great coach. What I asked this, well, we asked this question to a lot of players as to what makes the difference between a good player and a great player. But for you, what what is the difference between a good coach and a great coach? It's difficult to say. I think obviously, like most things in life, if you've got a lot of experience, you know, if you're a consultant or a surgeon and you've done, as I said before, thousands of operations, hopefully you've grown in confidence and lots of things that are presented to you, you've seen before. So you think, oh, I've seen this before. I know, I know how to deal with this, which yeah. then gives, the, gives the, the patient or the student confidence, doesn't it? But there are some very, very good coaches. And, you know, I went to a conference 30 years ago and, and Mike Hebron, who's, you know, he's a, if you kind of know of Hebron and Shoemaker, they're very ethereal characters, deep thinkers, very much into the neuroscience. He wrote this fantastic, well, several books, which was super technical, but he didn't know about the golf swing. But now he's gone, gone completely the other way. Play golf to learn golf. You know, understand how humans learn, understand the neuroscience. But he said at this conference 30-odd years ago, hey, the best coach might be some guy we've never heard of in Timbuktu. And don't forget, there are some coaches doing great stuff with juniors, which I really applaud them because I may not have the patience. I've done it in the past, but I certainly probably don't have the patience now. There are some coaches doing great stuff with beginners. There are some coaches doing great stuff with ladies. Sadly, there's no coaches that can help you, Josh. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, we all we all get sucked into the glamour of tour coaches, don't we? Oh, Butch Harmon. I mean, don't get me wrong. On one of the things we, we, we can talk about before about, does it help if your parents play golf or if, if your dad's a golf pro? Well, again, just like it depends. Gary Player's son, his, his son tried to play Tor didn't do well. Jack Nicholas is one of his sons. Gary had moderate kind of success. But Butch Harmon and his, his three brothers, I think, all sons of Claude Harmon, who won the Masters, you know, all were very competent players and got on to great coaching. So he, the, the father was a very knowledgeable 
you know, he won the Masters, but also a very knowledgeable coach. And he bestowed, if you're around him, probably, it's going to rub off. But that isn't always the case. You've got to say Jim Furyk's father is a golf pro. And you think, well, hang on, if his dad's a golf pro, why is he swinging it like that? But fair play to him. Jim said he wanted to be a golf pro and his dad said, come back when you're 13 and we'll think about it. And on his 13th birthday, he came back and said, I want to be a golf pro and let him pursue it. But he takes some guts not to fiddle with that golf swing. So actually, most of us would have said, well, you can't swing it like that. Come on, let's get you on plane. Let's, let's get, get, get you looking half decent. So again, and, and some parents, depends on the quality of the parents and the, the parents' knowledge. You get a lot of, unfortunately, in many sports, overbearing parents who, as I say, want to push the kids down. At the end of the day, the kids got to want to do it themselves. If, you, if yeah. you're going to have any longevity, you know, and you've probably heard Nick Doherty's podcast about, you know, how hard his dad was on him. Tiger Woods, his dad was hard on him, but in probably psychologically a slightly different way. He was a bit more cunning. He was making Tiger have mental toughness when distractions were happening. He was giving actually Tiger self-confidence and not kind of driving him mentally. He was kind of teaching him to be very independent. It's difficult to generalise, isn't it? But if your dad's a 15 handicapper and chops across it, it's highly likely if you play too much golf with him, you might end up being a 15 handicapper <laughs> and chops across it. <laughs> you know, yeah. if, if, you, if you're, you're observing that. Yeah, Josh, I'm not going to play with you again. <laughs> you're the reason I'm like this. I played with you too much. <laughs> <laughs> I think well, you know, it was the old Harvey Pennick thing, you know, and I think you, I can't, it was Ben Crenshaw or, or, or I think it was Crenshaw that asked Harvey Pennick, he's in the book, you know, how do you become a good putter? You know, and he said, go to dinner with good putters. So obviously there are certain, you know, if you read Matthew Syed's Bounce and things about nature versus nurture, if you're around good players like Lee Westwood and Darren Clark and you've got that stable of players and you're mixing with them, you see it on tour all the time, don't you, where get a guy who you think, well, he's just got on tour, he's a really good player. And then he, he's playing with his colleagues in his, his team stable or he's mixing with other players. And then next thing, he's playing and thinking, hang on a minute, I hit it as good as this guy and he's won the Open. So that then gives them the impetus to think, well, I'm not far away. And then if that chap has got, or lady has got the mental toughness so when the opportunity arises, they, they grab it. And, and players on, on tour, are more fearless than they've ever been. You know, in the old days, you had to kind of earn your stripes and, you know, your langers and your woozies went to tour, you know, in his little in, in his little van woozy, you probably know, you know, eating baked beans and in the days when it was a lowish budget, you could, and obviously great players, but kind of went the, the hard road. And I'm not saying it's hard for the other guys, obviously traveling and everything else, but once these guys play, and then particularly if they've been in the college system or they've played for the country, or the county and what have you, they're more predisposed to tournament play. And so they're less frightened when that opportunity comes along. And, and even yourself, Tristan, you know, you, you work on your technique, you get it going, and all of a sudden in a month's time, you played in the medal and you, you've knocked it around, you stood on the 16th tee, one over par, a level par, and you think, hang on, I could. And, and it takes a tough mind not to write your speech and just to stay in the moment and, play one shot at a time. So I always try to say with the young players, this dream you've got of being this great player, when you actually get there, it might be quite scary. So you better have some tools to know how you're going to deal with it. And I kind of have this this kind of phrase where I say, you know, you need the three S's, you need to be, you need to have a decent swing, a decent technique. 
you know, which you then use to become a decent shot maker. So then you can, once you've got this half decent golf swing, you can then tell tell what the golf ball what you want it to do. To say, I'm going to hit this right to left. I'm going to hit it low. I'm going to punch it under the wind. I'm going to cut it down the left or whatever. And so you become a shot maker. And then those two bits, you then have to learn to become a scorer. So that's where you have to be a chip and put, and where you need a temperament. You know, I asked John Jacobs, the famous coach, what is the most important thing, temperament or technique? And he said temperament. Because all these top guys, everybody on the European Tour can, and the USBJ can hit it, can't they? Mm. You put them all on the range. The guy who's 125th and earning $500,000 and the guy who's earning hundreds of millions, there's nothing in them. So what's the difference that makes the difference in any sport? And, and, and I've thought about this a lot. And, 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 and sometimes, again, it's maybe not pigeonholeable. You can certainly you can look at the stats these days, and again we've got strokes gained and and so on. And, and somebody who's a betting man can really analyse those and say this guy's trending, or this guy puts better on these greens, or this guy plays better on these golf courses, and and so on. But the real nuts and bolts of it, going back to what I said before, is can and this doesn't matter whether you're a racing driver or a tennis player or a footballer. When you think of say Liverpool in the Halcyon days or United, they could do it when it mattered most. When it was on, you know, when the pressure was on and it really mattered. And that's when your golf swing, shall we say, is it's got to be robust and repeatable. But you've got to have that self-belief, haven't you? That inner confidence. You had Jamie on and I'd be really interested to hear his thoughts. That, you you know, you've gone from a regional county player to a Ryder Cup player. Then, you, 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 you know, people have injuries and different things happen and then fight. And it's a gnat's whisker, isn't it? It must yeah. be a gnat's whisker between being a, a winner and, say, a journeyman or what have yeah. you. And with, there's no sell-by date on it. That's the great thing. With that, yeah. with that sort of it being so, such fine margin, I read your article in Today's Golfer when you were, you know, you were, you were leaning against the kitchen table and you had the iron in your hand and you had the dinner plate. And I thought, I can't believe that it's this simple. To improve that's going to help yeah yeah and and it is so how do you suggest we work on fundamental i know that's quite a broad question but i'm not asking um how do you know eradicate a slice or your duck hook what can we do at home to help us just follow basic striking the ball how can we improve that at home mm. well you know when you think back let's say when i learned golf i just had a book and I copied pictures in that book because golf was only on twice a year. The Open would come on, you know, you'd wait for that, or pro celebrity golfer. There was no Sky TV. There was nothing like that. John Jacobs had a series on Yorkshire TV and so on. So all you were consuming was pictures of top players. So, you know, we received most of our information through our eyes and so on. So at that time, you know, I copied, well, I, I kind of joke about this, but I copied this swing stripper, Johnny Miller's, and then Tom Watson was my idol and different things. But I copied these swings thinking, oh, well, that's obviously what a good player does not realise. And he was six foot three and I was five foot three. And he swung it up right and I'm copying that. <laughs> then spent the next 30 years trying to unravel it. But so initially, you know, you learn from pictures or, uh, concepts you have in your brain now if you think about it, again going back to kind of students who come into my base say well you know all you've got to you, you know you, you've got a responsibility to move the club around your body in the right arc shape you've got a responsibility to control the club face so you've got to understand which components which bits control those so a half decent grip 
I say half decent because there's a big variance in grips. By definition, a good grip is the one that allows you to control the club face for that given shot. So you could hold it upside down, back to front. There haven't been a couple of European tour players in the past who held it cack-handed and won. So there's no... When people say, what's the perfect grip? Well, it's the one that allows you to control the ball. Mm. So they're not all the same, number one. And then what is the perfect swing shape? Well, you can't tell me that Ricky Fowler's swing looks like um, Bubba Watson's. So one guy swings it around behind him and the other guy swings it up above him. But at the moment of truth, the club's moving in the right path, looking in the right direction. And in answer to your kind of question, well, all you've got to do is turn your body and swing your arms. That's what everybody does who plays golf. Now, how you turn your body is important because 50% of golf pros who are coaching tomorrow will see people tilting and sliding and not turning correctly. And and 50% will see people swinging their arms too steep, too shallow, too whatever. So, you know, if you're in a mirror, if you've got an understanding of what a good turn looks like against a table or in a mirror or what have you, you can practice that without, say, the aid of a golf club necessarily. You can practice your grip at home. You can, you know, you can practice your takeaway. But, you know, you can practice all those things. You've just got to know what you're looking for, haven't you? Mm. And, um, you know, so you can't neglect the basics, you know, your grip stain, stance, aim, posture, all those sort of things. But then you need to know what that club, what that club's got to do, the journey of that golf club. How is that going to influence the golf ball? And I do get a little frustrated because, again, we live in a, an age, and I'm not criticizing, but certain pros, if you, if you use big words, or there seems a fascination now to use medical terminology to describe the golf swing. And, and scientific. So, we, we, you know, you can't bow your wrist or cup it anymore. You've got to go into flexion or extension and you've got to have internal shoulder rotation, external rotation instead of turn or different things or cuff or so on. So sometimes the language you use, if you don't understand that language or you're making that language more complex for the student to, to understand, that makes it difficult. I had a laugh today. was a very highly respected golf coach I was watching on Twitter the other day. And there's another one of a buddy who's written a book, which is uh, a very expensive book, 135 quid, because I bought it. <laughs> and it's a, a scientific study into the golf swing. And, and, and every bit of it in the book has to be true. They've, they've researched it incredibly. And I don't kind of name names. But, but now we've got, you know, so the club, instead, you know, the club can move up and down or side to side or it can rotate like a, like a plane. But we're going to give them some new terms. We're going to have alpha, beta, gamma, and what have you. So the guy's saying, well, so at this point, so the gamma forces are doing this, and the alpha forces are doing that, and the beta forces are doing that. So if you were saying that to 95% of your students, they would need then a Morse code book or something to decipher that code if they couldn't understand what that language was. So they've got a problem straight away because they've now got to learn a new language to describe the golf swing. Well, I think your left wrist went into flexion, or you know it cupped, or it bowed, or it did this. So there is a kind of fascination at the moment for using big words and whether that's to make the coach sound more important or whether it is just to say, well, hang on, that's the actual correct terminology. And we've all done it. You know, we'll talk about compressing the ball and impact and separation and, and so on. But again, I think it's, it's finding that balance with those things, isn't it? We don't yeah. want to put obstacles in the way. But, you know, golf, as I said, you've got to turn your body and swing your arms and move the club around your body in the, in the right shape, you, you, you've got to aim aim yourself and you need to aim the blow. You know, you could stand aiming 50 yards left, but it doesn't matter if you're 
swing 50 yards to the right because you've neutralized it. So you could be yeah. like Dustin Johnson. You could say, oh, he's got a bowed left wrist or, and he's closed. Yeah, but he isn't at the moment of truth. Yeah, you know, the, that was brilliant insight. Just a last question before we go into the into the fun ones. I know we're, we're taking no. up a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, just touching on something that you said before, uh, watching the golf this weekend um, and just witnessing how far that Bryson DeChambeau was hitting the ball. And mm. obviously he's been training for a very, very long time. Well, oh, sorry, he's been training for the last three months. You know, it looks like a totally different person. How do you see the game changing over the next sort of 10 years, considering that using Bryson DeChambeau as an example, do you think it could really kickstart a new era in terms of a distance-led game plan for players? You know, I know that Rory hit it, you know, a long mm. way. and Tiger started that in, in, in around 2000. But if I was a PGA Tour player, a European Tour player, watching him do that, and, and the strokes gained, it's quite incredible. But do you think we're at risk in losing skills of the game? I, I think we are. I've got two or three points on that. The pros who were kind of my age, 50-odd or whatever, in our day, we didn't have driving ranges. You were a member of a golf club. It had a limited practice facility. So you used to shag your own balls. You used to go and get your own golf balls. You'd take a pass, you know, you collect balls that you found and you had a little practice ball bag. And you would go and hit seven irons at the side of the first fairway or whatever. And your objective was, because you'd heard about Hogan, how he could just rifle them at a tree or a shooting stick or an umbrella and never miss it. His caddy wouldn't have to walk five paces. And that would be true if you went to a, a tournament in the 50s or what have you. You would, you know, in 60s and early 70s, you'd see Nicholas on the practice area hitting balls at his caddy and they'd just be bouncing in front of him and mm. um you'd just be thinking that's amazing and uh, and so that's the era they grew up in they learned to be powerful i mean don't get me wrong nicholas and these guys were super powerful but they were super accurate and they weren't brought up on a, a on a driving range or seen sky tv where they were just trying to smash it out the back of a driving range so now youngsters come to a driving lanes like ours and, uh, and, 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 and maybe Josh and whatever, you just think, I've seen the guys on telly hit it 300 yards. That, that's normal. That's what I believe to be normal. So yeah. I'll stand there and have a hop, skip and a jump at it. So golf is changing in that respect. Does that unfortunately mean that they don't lose, you learn the skills of controlling the ball before they do that? Now, every pro will tell you and every good player will say, well, learn to hit it hard first and learn to hit it straight. I think that's definitely the TPI guys, all the research. If you're going to be an elite performer, you've got to hit it hard. But you're not going to hit it that hard that you miss it or you can't keep it on the fairway or, or so on. So I see that, again, like one of the guys I taught this week, swinging that hard at it that he cannot keep it on the fairway. And I, I liken it. I, I use various analogies in coaching. And I'll say, listen, you know, what um, Lewis Hamilton can do, and this is what defines you as skill again, he can drive a racing car around Monaco at 200 miles an hour without hitting those walls. If you and I tried to drive at 200 miles an hour, because we don't have the same skill, we'd probably kill ourselves. Mm. Well, Rory McIlroy, Bryson DeChambeau can swing the club at 129 miles an hour and still find the centre of the face and still move the club on a decent path with the club face looking in a decent direction. But when Mr. and Mrs. Joe Soap tries to move the club at 130 miles an hour, it's a car crash because yeah. they haven't got all the other attributes or skills that that the, the good player has developed. You know, Rory's been playing since he was knee-high, Tiger, all these guys. They've all been playing since they were knee-high, so they've developed, developed other skill sets as well as speed. 
speed alone is not very useful because you're just going to crash. But going to the future of the game, I mean, I don't, I wasn't a fan of what I saw at the weekend because if you think of when Tiger won at Hoylake and he only used his driver once, now admittedly it was bouncy and so on and so forth. But if you look at the US Open when the rough's high, and bear in mind in the US, all their rough is, is not rough. I played yesterday and, and, and although I, I hit it nicely, I drove it nicely, I'm always not very long but fairly straight. But if you went off the fairway, it was gone or you'd be lucky to find it. So if Bryson DeChambeau was doing what he was doing yesterday at Royal Birkdale or, you know, it might be, uh, you know, Harlech or somewhere, some of those would be in the cabbage never to be seen again. Yeah. Double uh, bogey, yeah. Load. So would he, be, would he be having the same strategy? So, you know, and I don't know what the answer is in the future of golf. How are we going to change the ball? I think that's very difficult to do, to have a, a ball for the pros and a ball for the amateurs. And at what point do elite amateurs swap to the other ball? You know, do you play in the Walker Cup or do you just keep switching balls and so on? It was a bit like when I'm old enough to remember when we went from the small ball, the 1.62 to the 1.68 and playing the American ball. And it was totally different. One was like you know, a little pe- pebble, a missile, and, and then learning to control the bigger ball, which made us all better players. But for me, and I know, again, the golf course architects and people like that will have different views because of the cost of maintaining golf courses and so on. We'll just leave the rough for six months yeah. <laughs> and let yeah. it grow randomly and let the weeds, and let it be six foot. You know, at the Hoyle, you hit it and you slice one 25 yards to the right and you get down there, and if you're lucky, it might be in a little clearing. And if you're unlucky, it's in three foot high of brambles that you're just going to have to reload. Yeah. Now, I, I don't know if Bryson DeChambeau or Bubba Watson or anybody else, and once the wind blows and you get a bit of rain or whatever, would they have that same attitude on a, I don't know, a more, not say a man-made, but a more natural golf course? And I know you've got, say, the Ryder Cup and places like Whistling Straits and Chambers Bay where you've got those more wispy, fescuey golf courses but then you go to say when they played the President's Cup in Australia and Melbourne there, an old fashioned golf course where a 300 yard par 4 they couldn't make par on it half of them mm. so I think it's, it's horses for courses and I don't like this kind of bomb and gouge I think that takes the skill out of the game Yeah, and I'm not decrying DeChambo obviously he's a very intelligent fascinating he's an eccentric to a degree isn't he he's fascinating with his his approach to golf and, and and he can do it there's no doubt about it but would he quite have that same approach if if we if it was you know obviously i know because of covid it's all difficult and so on but next month if it was the open at royal st george's and there's a 50 mile an hour wind blowing and he's got his waterproof on which he's not had on for a year uh, would he have that same same approach now don't get me wrong young guys do want to bomb it there's no doubt about it. it's attractive it's sexy in it we all want to smash it if you hit it 300 yards you want to hit it four and so on, but also, do you want to play to scratch? Do you want to be a good player? Do you want to control the golf ball? It's not all about just yeah. smashing, is it? Good luck to him if that is what his um, plan will be in the Open. Well, yeah, we'll, we we might he might miss the cut, sadly. You know, so I think you know he's, a, he's an intelligent bloke. He, but again, if, if he's hitting everything further, all of a sudden he'll be in his five iron, two hundred yards, or chipping it down there, and and so be it. But yeah. um, do we see somebody like Bryson? Do what he's doing around somewhere like Portrush, where they had the the open mm. last year, mm. and he manages to find the fairways and use his driver a lot and and wins the tournament. I don't know whether people will whether they'll believe that is the the right way to go yet because mm. I think for the American tour, yes. 
because it, yeah, it, it fairly. It, well, I'm saying this fairly ignorantly, but a lot of the courses that I watch on you know the PJ Tour, they're, they're all very much the same. Yeah. I think European Tour golfers, there's there's a lot more variant in in the, the courses that they play, and I find that arguably that's why we do better in the Ryder Cup because we're able to adapt more. We we hit more fairways. I say we, like me. Mm. I mean, the professional European tour players, you know, they hit more fairways, they're more accurate. And that's why they struggle. You know, that's why they struggle around Paris and Glen Eagles. It's it's a real, real tough tough one for them. I, yeah, I, I, think don't, see, I, I agree. I don't see how you can... I mean, he put on like 30, 40 pounds. I only, I'm going to say pounds because it, it was on the PGA Tour of muscle over the past few months. I don't see how that... How he can maintain that, how that's how that's efficient in the long run, years down the line. Do you know what I mean? Like that that takes a lot of mm. of hard work to maintain. It's short, like for the next couple of years, he probably find it quite easy. But do you know what I mean? One, if he decides then ultimately to sort of uh, right, okay, I've done this now. It's going to be harder to maintain in the next few years. All of a sudden, he's going to be hitting two two clubs two clubs longer into 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 holes that he's normally hitting a wedge. Do you know what I mean? So I think he might suffer mm. that that end of the game as well. Yeah, even if you hit it, I mean, obviously you hit the wedge in what, what he had a hundred yards like fourteen times, didn't he, or something like yeah. that. Now, if he was absolutely brilliant with his wedge, he should have walked it. Yeah, you know, if you think of it statistically like that. Um, so obviously the rest of the game has got to stack up as well, hasn't it? You know, it's no use hitting it three hundred yards and 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 then not sticking it to twelve or inside twelve feet every time or ten feet or whatever. You know, the best players are doing, but. And also, I'm a bit, I don't know, it's a bit old school. I don't like this. You know, people say, oh, well, and, and, and I've got to be very, very careful of how he's built his mass, you know, and what he's taken and, uh, and so on to do, how natural that is. If you think of Gary Player, he's very evangelical, obviously, about his fitness and so on. And 80 odd, he's incredible, but 1,000 sit ups a day and eating raw meat. And, and he made himself strong. Players before them, Henry Cotton, did they made themselves strong with good old fashioned exercise and, and so on. So it's where you draw the line. It's like cycling. Well, do we start having blood transfusions? Do we start doing this before a tournament? Do I do I look at all sorts of things? How how natural a pastime or thing you do want this to be? It becomes like the Russian weightlifters in the you know and all those sort of things. And I, I don't think it's I don't get me wrong, but how natural he's done that, and for his health, you know, look at what Tiger did with his body changing all the time, uh, and so on. I'm not sure what the long. I don't know enough about it because it's not my forty. But what the long-term health implications are in search of trying to smash it that yeah. far, and and as I say, how useful is that? Again, on the US tour, yes. Certain golf courses, yes. You know, we we talk about Phil Mickelson, your hero, and smashing it, and there's a bit of cavalier attitude. That's great, but fortunately, you need all these other skill sets. Now he might prove us wrong. He, you know, if he, he's very, very clinical with his irons and his putting and everything, so he'll be giving his best shot. That's for sure. But you know, he didn't. He didn't win it this weekend. So let's see what happens next week, and 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 so on. I think the golf course for me, you know, got to think about what we do with the golf course. What I wanted to ask, I know that Eddie had said we're, we're just going to one more question, but I don't want to let you go, Adrian. So. Um... What I wanted to ask was, do you believe today, given the quality of coaching and the quality of information that golfers can have, that every club golfer should have lessons? I know that you've got your natural talents, but given that we have such a wide variety of golfers, 
but everyone's needs can be met by going to a good coach. Do you think that everybody should go to a coach? I massively regret not having a coach for the last 10 years. I feel like I'd be in a much better position than I am now. And now I'm, I'm adamant that I will be going regularly. Yeah, I think it's you, you can't make people go for lessons and not necessarily. A lot of people might need lessons and need to improve, but it may be not. That's not what floats the boat or they're not that obsessed about it and, and so on. And, you know, you only need to stand on a driving range and see people's interpretation of what they think a golf swing looks like. And you think, well, haven't they got a television? Because that doesn't look anything like a golf swing. But in their mind, it does you know, <laughs> and so they think they're doing what is right. And I'm sure that might be the same with tennis coaches or ice skating or dancing or whatever. But you can't force people down to it. I think there's a big fear of lessons. I, I get a lot of people come in and they're really nervous. Oh, it's like worse than going to the dentist. So contrary to what I was going to say before, beating people up, I spend a lot of time saying, hey, come on, there's nothing you can do I haven't seen before and let's get hitting them. And, and sometimes those people are, are really pleasurable to teach, you know, because you, you you just go, hey, look, well, this is the swing, this is the concept, you you know, you hit down or you swing around and you go, oh, I never knew that. God, I wish I'd come 10 years ago or five years ago or what have you. So you just give them a little bit more of an, a, a conceptual understanding and just change things. And, and, and uh, they, they, they love it, they cock a hoop, which is really from a job satisfaction point of view for any coach, whether the player's 28 handicap or whether they're a tour player. Sometimes just a little adjustment and, and they're off. They've hit a, a drive like they've never hit them before uh, and so on. But a lot of people say are very, very nervous about lessons. They think, oh, the pro's going to change me and I won't be able to do it and it's going to be uncomfortable. And I know after a lesson you get worse before you, you have to have six months of pain before you get better. Well, I know with a big, and I'm sure I'm going to talk for most golf pros, I'll say, when someone walks out of your bay or off your practice area, you know they're immediately better because they're holding it better or they're, they're swinging it on a better path or whatever. So, you know, often they're, they're going to be better off, you know, and it's a kind of a laying those fears, really. You're, you're yourself, you're converted. You're thinking, God, I wish I'd laid the foundations better early on, which is obviously easier for us to then coach you because we've already got you half over the, the finishing line, as it were. Yeah. So some people need a bit of convincing and others don't. But but I think it's difficult to generalise. But most people would definitely benefit from the the right amount of coaching at the right amount of time because you can overcoach as well. You know, we've all done it. I've done it. I've given some awful lessons. I'm first to admit that, and I'm not afraid to say to somebody, "Listen, we tried that and it didn't work. Let's try Plan B because Plan A, I thought that was in your best interest, but it isn't working. So we need." And Matt would tell you that. You know, that it's a two-way affair. You know, you and the student want one thing. You want the the, the player to play better. You don't want to just force your opinion or theories on them. You want them to enjoy it and play better. Am I actually getting second-hand information? Is, is, Matthew Totti, is Matthew Totti teaching me, but it's actually your information? Yeah, every word of it. He's just plagiarised <laughs> it. <laughs> Talking about Matt, incidentally, he's a, Matt, I've taught, no, taught him for a long time, and he is one of the hardest-working pros you'll ever meet. You know, if I said to him, run up Mount Everest in your underpants, he'd, he'd do it. You know, <laughs> he's a grafter. Again, it's all about personalities, isn't it? And technology has certainly helped him. Without a shadow of a doubt, his much monitor and everything on his track man has really helped him understand his own game and kind of add feel to his, his movements. He's quite a particular, you know, individual. So that, going back to what we said about horses for courses, that form of 
coaching technology really benefits his game. But for someone like Bubba Watson, who says, well, I've never had a golf lesson, you know, you just hit it, you know, <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> it, it wouldn't necessarily suit him, but it would for his club fitter and, and so on. I feel brilliant going to Matt Totty and uh, as no, he'll look after you. Yeah, and, and he he gave me such a detailed account of what we'd been through as well. That is what I think people would be missing more than anything. It's that's what I mean about golf coaching these days. Mm. It is also very competitive. So I've been to lessons when I was a junior uh, playing for the county, and it was so it was a bit you know oh yeah do this with your hand and then I see how you're getting on. But with Matt, he just gave me a, a huge run through about what my issue was, how to fix that issue and what I should be doing moving forward. And he sent me my trackman numbers. And after I was like, right, OK, well, I need this, if not weekly or fortnightly, then once a month, you know, it's brilliant. Yeah, you had a, you've had a, a, a really good prognosis or a good, you know, understanding of what, like we said before, your strengths and weaknesses and where you, how you're going to get there demonstration application as it were in old money and um, you know it's great because again it gives you some belief and focus and you're not wandering aimlessly are you you know you yeah. you, you, you need again everybody say you need a route map if you want to get to Sainsbury's you better know how you got there yesterday yeah or if you want to get there again tomorrow so you know you need to know if you want to duplicate something you better understand what it was you did well, Otherwise, you're not going to be able to duplicate it. No. Well, I want to get to uh, Waitrose or MS. <laughs> well, I'm a big spender. Which takes me on to another story when I was put, sorry, I'm digressing again, when I was put in my place by Jack Nicholas. One of the students I taught, a young girl, Lauren from Cheshire, she won a, she was at St. Andrews University and she got this opportunity through RBS Bank or whatever to meet Jack Nicholas. Cut long story short, we went, we went up there, so Nicholas honoured his obligation. He normally goes to Wimbledon with RBS and then. Uh, Glen Eagles so they said no no the meeting's going to be had you're going to meet Mr Nicholas so we were sat in this kind of state room in Glen Eagles me and her sat there we could hear this little voice hi and you know and we go, oh, God, that's Jack Nicholas and then this chap walks in as if he didn't know who he was and he says hi I'm Jack Nicholas you know I'm thinking no shit you know, I'm, you know I know who you look like because my first open was the, the open at Turnberry in 1977 the jewel in the sun where Watson beat Nicholas so it kind of has fond memories for me but anyway so this was fantastic for me and he's, he's kind of talking to Lauren hi Lauren tell me a bit about your golf and so on and then me as the coach well what do you think and I said well she needs to you know she's, she's doing well but she needs to you know have a few kind of gets knocked down in tournaments and then come back and he said no I don't agree you've got to learn to win never mind losing got to learn to win and then when you win win again you know and, <laughs> and he, he, he was very true and at the time Luke Donald was number one and Rory was um, a member of the, there were more members of the Bears club and Keegan Bradley and Rory McIlroy and Luke Donald and whatever. And me being, I like in the underdog, kind of making polite conversation. I said to him, you know, Mr. Nicholas, I don't think Rory, um, Luke Donald gets the credit that he really deserves. And Rory at this time hadn't made, this was about 2013, I think. Rory was just kind of emerging. And I said, I don't think, you know, everybody's going on about Rory and I, I don't think Luke Donald gets the credit he deserves as a, as a good player and he went no he said Rory's the real deal <laughs> <laughs> never mind Luke Rory's the real deal they're, they're <laughs> members of they're members of my golf club Keegan and Rory and Dingy practice I've watched Rory hit it Rory's the real deal you watch this space and he is it when I always hear him on television he's just so so much common sense you just think yeah. how can you and how can you doubt God yeah you know 
it's fantastic. But um, mm. anyway, that's my that my take on good players. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think we should we'll test Josh every week, uh, Adrian. We get Josh to ask the fun questions, and mm. even though it's his podcast, he can never really remember them. So, Josh, do you want to go ahead and ask the fun questions? I uh, jokes on you. I remember them. <laughs> good, I'm glad. Uh, the first question, uh, Adrian, is: um, Is there any particular shot or, or round of golf that you can conclu- conclusively say is your best golf or shot ever? I, I, I have to be disappointing in this, and and the, 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 there's no real. I, th- I thought about this because I thought you might kind of ask me something like this, and there was no my my um, playing career was so mediocre. There's not many. I've had obviously decent rounds and decent. I can remember kind of. I was. I mentioned to you I was uh, the pro at Chorley, and I can remember. And I can't remember what event, but it was for the Leeds Cup or the Club Pros Championship in a playoff. And we had to go down the first hole, which is a par four on this elevated tee, and you drive down. And I can remember kind of wafting the ball and getting it down there with these four other guys or however in the playoff, and I knocked it on the green. The greens are really slopey green, and I had this downhill right to left kind of 15 footer and knocked it in and qualified and knocked the other guys out and, and uh, qualified for the event. And I thought, well, that was, you know, things like that. But I don't have, um, I've not got a, a fantastic playing record. As I say, I don't get me wrong. I want to play, I've still got pride in my game. I want to knock it around in level par or under par or whatever. But I don't play as much as my job is, or, or my time management maybe, but my job, I'm that busy teaching kind of five and a half, six days a week that, my own game has taken a bit of a backseat. I still love hitting balls. I still love practicing, but but there's no kind of one round where I think, wow, that was that period. I've had periods where I hit nice shots and periods where I played nicely and knocked it around subpar and so on. But I don't have any massive um, career highlights. You know, played the final qualifying for the Open, things like that, where my hands were shaking that much I couldn't move the putter back. Yeah. The second question is. A dream four ball uh, with yourself, uh, a family member or friend, uh, a famous person and a famous golfer. Right, yeah. Well, for me, obviously, I'd love to play with my son because, you know, that would be just a great thing to do. Um, yeah. Number one. My hero, largely kind of growing up, was Tom Watson. I'd love to play yeah. with him at whatever age. But you know, I saw him, obviously, in his dominant years. Famous people, it's a difficult one. I'm not that kind of um, obsessed that much with fame. So whether it would be somebody, I don't know, like an Albert Einstein or somebody who could pick his brains or something like yeah. that, or even Elvis Presley or somebody, That'd be good um, you know, Elvis Presley, you know, he dabbled in golf, or somebody like that. But I've not, I've not got a kind of fascination with rock stars or pop stars or, or even yeah. like David Attenborough, somebody, you know, somebody interesting. Yeah, like. yeah. That would be great for uh, Matt, to, uh, your son, to put that on YouTube, wouldn't it? The Friars, Albert Einstein, and Tom Watson. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, a bit of physics. Yeah. <laughs> Tom Watson, though, just a superb player. I, I love Tom Watson. I think people don't give him enough credit because we joke on this side of the pond and say, you know, you take some American to to win the Open and to come and understand the way the links play and the way we play golf over here. And when you look at Jack Nicklaus and the good golfers that actually have won it, for him to have won it five times is just, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, to me, it, it was kind of not just the quality of his golf. And again, you only see these sometimes secondhand unless you know these people personally. But the way he conducted himself and you play the game, he appears to play the game in the spirit it was meant to be played. You find the ball, you hit it, no cheating, no thing, you know, trying to bend the rules with your, your, your lies and or your, your free drops and God knows what. The spirit of the game and as one, you know, term, oh, sorry, Carnoustie 76 and that period of time. And then when he nearly, I mean, when he nearly won at Turnberry, when he knocked mm. it over the back, I mean, that probably, if he'd got up and down there, probably would have been one of the greatest sporting achievements of all time. Yeah. And he took it on the chin, obviously, but, but that would have been at his age at the time, whatever he was, 60, or seven, whatever he was. I mean, I, was, I can't exactly remember, but, but it, phenomenal. But as a golfer and as a, a player, you know, if you win the Open five times, I don't get me wrong, that doesn't take anything away from Nicholas. Nicholas is my hero because, again, the way he just mentally, Nicholas, for me, you know, when you get into the debate of who's the best player, Tiger Woods or Nicholas, for me, it's Nicholas, hands down, when you look at you know, I saw a stat today. Oh, <laughs> I saw a stat today about how many top 10s players had, and he had, had like 73 top 10 finishes, and everybody else was 40. Yeah. You know, all the greatest players, 40 odd. He was just just a fantastic golfing mind. Could just, like I said, he could do it when it mattered most, most of the time. Adrian, thank you so much. I mean, uh, yeah. people yeah. won't appreciate thank this you. when it comes to the actual podcast, but <laughs> we've taken so much of your time just because we don't want to let you go. So thank you for. Don't worry. I'm sorry to um, rab it on. The, the Matt will tell you all about that. I'm really sorry to <laughs> just <laughs> to go off piste. No, brilliant. It was fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Can we come and no. see you in Liverpool? Yeah, certainly. Anytime. You're welcome to you guys come down. You can even bring that <laughs> the other guy on the end. <laughs> <laughs> well, well. Yeah, we'll definitely come over. Yeah, we will. Come over with Matt and um, we'll have hit some balls and we've got computers in every bay, top trace in every bay. You can play St. Andrews, Pebble Beach. You can look well, at the numbers. You can... You know, so wh- wh- where is that in Liverpool? Um, it's actually um, Liverpool Golf Centre, which is in Netherley, an area now. It's just near Highton. It's just Junction 6 off the M62. The facility is a great facility. The owners put a lot of money into it and keeps doing so and developing it from an old rundown range five years ago. And, and thanks for inviting me on the show. Our no pleasure. Our pleasure. The best of luck with it. It's great what you're doing. Good, good for golf and 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 and, and good fun. Well, that that was really, really good. That was really insightful. All I guess are insightful. Like we say that all the time, but it really is. Uh, especially for me and Eddie, both chasing to be single figures now, aren't we? And you know, for single figure handicaps and that. Um, it was really, really good, and I really enjoyed it. And I definitely am going to pay him a visit in Liverpool come September time when universities restart. It's right. Not, it's not a story, listeners. We've just handed the first introduction into the out the first outro. Yeah, we've just handed Josh the reins to his first kind of introduction into a new part of the podcast. And you basically told us a story. I'll outro you in a minute, lad.
in the end? Well, I don't know. Um, not from a um, double figures handicap. I'm not. I'm not trying to give you advice. I'm not trying to say anything to you that would influence you in any way. Okay, I'm just asking as a as a spectator, as somebody yeah. who is taking in all this information, these conversations with these great people that we get on. Give me it. Is any of it going to sink in? It is. I told you. It's all. It's like taking water onto a sinking ship. It's all coming on. Mm. No, because that implies that it's all bad for me. It's all good for me. It's just a bit overwhelming. I reckon that Jess has learned. Your wife. Um, um, yeah, I reckon that Jess has learned more about golf and about these podcasts than you have, and you've been sat. <laughs> What's Jess's handicap? Oh yeah, she's have one. All right, I tell you what. If I give Jess a handicap of 36, I think she'd beat you. No chance. No chance. I'd be, I'd be about 350 yards ahead of her. Every hole. So she'd hit the, the ball minus 100 yards? Yeah, funny, mate. Can't do that. Well, you won't be hitting it 350 yards without a drive, will you? No, no. I, I was talking about four nine. I Four nine goes 350. I need you to find another podcast because I'm, yeah. I'm reaching the end of my tether here. I genuinely am. I'm running out of ideas. I'm running out of patience and I'm running out of just general. Have you let the listeners know that um, obviously when the restrictions are lifted, we're going to try a little Ryder Cup style match, your home club versus my home club. And you've obviously drafted in some, some friends and members such as Eddie. Eddie's going to be playing on your team. Um, I'll just let you well this isn't for you guys it's for listeners for you listen now that Trist or Eddie have both refused to play me in the singles uh, oh yeah but both <laughs> refused to play me in the singles <laughs> that is yes you did that's and what that's a blatant lie one there's a couple of the reasons one was you stop you guys don't something about distance hitting that you feel a bit you're a bit self-conscious about how far you have to stop. see when you play with me stop, stop. Stop. We're ending there. We can talk about the match next week. Eddie, I'm done with this. Boy, can you close us out? I'm a man. Thank you for listening again. Uh, please subscribe and follow. I don't know why I say that anymore. You're not subscribing. You're not following. So if you listen to this podcast right now, I'm talking to you. Uh, there's no point you having it on your car or at home and not listening to me right now. Subscribe, please. Follow, please. Um, and everything else that comes with at the end of the podcast when you meant whatever you meant to say at the end of the podcast just imagine <laughs> I've said it yeah yes have a good week yeah have a good week stay safe go and get it hit bombs go and get what whatever they want <laughs> good score loaf of bread from co-op anything you need it you go get it have that mentality in you. You will believe and you'll achieve. Stop. I'm going. Yeah. All right. I love you. See you in a bit, guys. Love you. Bye.